This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm really pleased to have with me two researchers from Coventry University who have been doing some fascinating research funded by the Nuffield Foundation on supporting the identity needs of minoritised children and young people in care. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over and ask the colleagues to introduce themselves, starting with you, Saria. Thank you so much, Julian. It's really great to be here. My name is Saria Chiruvalil, contractor, and I'm a professor in the sociology of religion at the Center for Trust, Peace and Social Relations, Coventry University. Absolutely delighted to have done the research funded by the Nuffield Foundation on, on children in care and their identities, and, and actually really pleased to have the opportunity to talk about the work with you today. Thank you, Saria. And Kusha. Uh, thank you, Julie. I'm Kusha. I am research fellow and co-investigator on two research projects at the University of Coventry. I have a decade of field experience in interdisciplinary projects focusing on ethnic minoritized groups, refugees and migrants in the UK. I'm very passionate about the use of art-based methods to amplify the voices of children from these groups in the UK. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you both. And I just want to say that there is a third member of the team, Alison Halford, who isn't here today, but is a key member of the team and of this part of the research. So, um, Saria, if I could come to you first, I wonder if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about the research and what some of the key messages coming out of the research are. So just a little taster of what's to come. Thank you, Julie. So, me and, and Alison and Kusha, we've been working in this area around children from minoritized backgrounds, their identities for a good few years now. And what we realized was that there is a gap in, in research around children and their identities. And this gap was all about children's voices actually missing from the debate, children's voices missing from discussions about identities. And, and that is what we tried to address in our work. So we spoke to 26 children of Black, South Asian and other minoritized backgrounds. These children and young people were in the age range 14 to 21. We spoke to them about what ethnicity and ethnic identity meant to them. Many of these children had religious identities as well. And so we spoke to them about what religion, spirituality, or, or the lack of religion, what did it mean to them in their lives? And our work was about translating these children's narratives into resources, into tools that you know, people who work with them, you know, social workers, foster carers, decision makers, others who work with these children, wanted to create tools and resources that they could use to better serve these children. I think a key finding from our work has been that children's identities are not really set in stone. They're changing with time. They're changing, you know, depending on the context that they live in. It could be the schools they are going to or the foster carers they live with. It's changing with time, depending also on, you know, wider circumstances. 
and and we we've brought all of this together this changeability of children's identities we brought it together into a concept called influx identities that we will be talking about later on in this podcast but i think that is really the biggest message often when it comes to identity we look at it through adult lenses you know this is what blackness means or this is what being a christian means or this is what being a muslim means whereas when we spoke to children they had their own ways of understanding these identities of living through them and the meaning that these quote unquote labels had for children can be very different from you know how us as adults you know would would define these labels and that's another really key finding of our work listen to children active listening no two children's version of blackness is going to be the same and underpinning all our work both methodologically as well as in the resources we provide um, and and we produce was this commitment to really listening to the children and and letting their voices shape you know decision making about their lives thank you that's that's really interesting and we'll go into a little bit more detail about the findings shortly but before we get to that why do you think this is an important area of research so we know that every year around 70 to 80000 children come into care of the children who come into care around 15% um are of minoritized backgrounds and what we know for example from you know the census 2011 we don't have the latest census results yet but we know from census figures that consistently when it comes to people from minoritized backgrounds they have some sort of reliance on on faith and on religion in fact the last census told us 80% of people who come from black and minoritized backgrounds have a commitment to faith but this will be to different kinds of commitment to different kinds of faiths but this this nexus between ethnicity and religion is something that is not really spoken about not really looked at in relation to children in care over the last decade or so there has been a growing emphasis on children's ethnic identities other than our work religion does not really uh, form part of the evidence base that informs you know practice with these children so that was one reason why we really wanted to do this work the other reason i think i'd i'd, I'd describe it as a sort of the politics of care all children need safe secure and loving homes this is the basis of all children social work practice um and within this we are also meant to you know look out for their identity needs and our work i think goes to the very heart of what these identities entail you know at the sort of most basic level for black children this could mean support for their hair and skin care needs which on the one hand you know we might take as really really trivial but if you are a black child in care living in a home where other people don't have hair and skin care needs like yours this this can be you know at the front of your identity needs for muslim heritage children you, the very basic needs would be things like access to to halal food for example for a devoutly practicing christian child it might mean access to religious education 
And if you are a Christian child who's come here from another country, then it might also mean access to Christian education, to Christian scripture in a language that you are familiar with. Our work is all about this intersectionality, the intersection between very basic identity needs, the intersection between ethnicity and religion, but also being a minoritized child in care. And actually, I'll take that a step further, actually just being a child in care, because all children, irrespective of their ethnicity or their identity needs. And our work is about encouraging all families and practitioners to pay particular attention to these needs. Now, I, I've, I've spoken about basic needs, right? I spoke about halal food. I spoke about skin care and hair care. I spoke about access to scripture in a language that you are familiar with. Now, if our colleague Alison were here, she would have also spoken about the halal principle. Um, but I'll, I'll try and channel my inner Alison. And, and what she means by the halal principle is every time we've spoken to practitioners who are working with a Muslim child, they say, we'll meet this child's needs by giving them halal food. Now, it, this could be transposed to a different ethnicity, to a black child. And, and we'd hear from practitioners that if we had a black child in our care, we would support them by ensuring they have access to adequate hair and skin care. These are absolutely essential things. But when it comes to identity, it is, it is much more than just, you know, these kinds of things. But it is also about the bigger picture. You know, what is your version of blackness or what is your version what is each child's version of Islam or of blackness or of whatever aspect of their identity they seek to prioritize? You know, what are the bigger questions around identity? So blackness could be about hair and skin. It is also about black culture, black music, black forms of worship. Through our work, we really wanted to uncover how do children understand these categories? not through adult lenses, but to the, through a child's lens. And, and, and that is why I think this work is really, really important. Prioritizing, emphasizing, amplifying the child's voice in discourses that heretofore are really determined by adult lenses, but also on discourses that are so politicized by, you know, social hierarchies and, and whose voice is heard more. We wanted to deconstruct some of these categories. We wanted to disrupt some of these societal hierarchies by, by yeah, amplifying the child. Um, I wonder, Kusha, if you could just talk a little bit about the research that you did, because this is obviously quite a sensitive piece of research. So can you just talk us through the methods that you used? Yes, surely. Um, so we did this research with a very vibrant tapestry of research methodologies, all with the goal of truly connecting with our participants in the context of their unique stories. And we traveled this path as a, with a mosaic of methods combining art, collaboration, and a keen focus on children's voices to reveal a rich as well as nuanced understanding of the expressions of identity. 
And we are not just talking about traditional paintings here. We're talking about a symphony of creative outlets such as art, carpentry, interior decor, drama, poetry, photography, and yes, even TikTok. So this mixture empowered uh, and amplified our participants' voices to convey and to share their journeys authentically and in their own method of preference going beyond the constraints of the traditional research methods. Also in our research, managing power differentials also became critical. And acknowledging and addressing these power dynamics wasn't just a checkbox for us. It was the key to creating an environment or atmosphere or a safe space for a participant to feel free to express themselves and also to contribute to the research on their own terms. Importantly, the heartbeat of this project is the participatory method with a spotlight on amplifying children's voices. It was merely a journey led by our young participants themselves, where they had the full autonomy to share their experiences in their own unique ways. And in this space, our participants didn't just contribute, they truly expressed themselves, they truly shared their expressions of identity in the ways that resonated with their own diverse stories and perspectives. Can you give some examples of the those kinds of methods that you used? So when we approach and when we spoke to our participant, we gave them a medium of their own preference to choose. So for example, when I spoke to one participant, they used the interior decor of their rented accommodation of the council house to talk about their journeys of migration, the journeys in care in that particular accommodation. Another participant shared their TikTok handle with me to to share their expressions of identities and also to share their responses to their expressions of identity when prompted by her viewers. I have another example to share with you. A young participant shared his pieces of artwork with me and he explained how each color, how those canvas described his journeys and is the colors in those artworks, his emotions in, in care. Mm. So those kinds of methods could be used by social care practitioners in their exploration of identity with children and young people. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, definitely. And our young participants have also shared that they were very happy to you know explore these methods with frontline practitioners, and they found these methods more useful to share their journeys rather than an interview form question. They've mm. also said that the creative communication through these methods better describe their expressions of identity than the pieces or the list of traditional questions. Thank you. Uh, um, and talking about identity can be quite emotive for children and young people. So how did you ensure the well-being and emotional safety of the participants in the research. This was very important and I, our first approach was not to re-traumatise them. Uh, by giving them the option or the medium of their choice really helped us to develop the first layer of space, space, safe space with them. 
We used a trauma-informed approach in our research, and it was important for us to understand the potential impact of trauma, including the racialized and caste-based trauma among the young participants we spoke to, was very pivotal and important for us as researchers. And we did this by meticulously crafting a very safe and non-re-traumatizing space by navigating the challenges with strategic considerations and approaches, we were very sensitive to the interactions we had with our young participants. We made those adaptations in the research design, ensuring that the discussions we have with our children on these um, sensitive topics are handled and are approached with cultural humility and care. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that, Saria? Yes, what we what we realized in, in, in doing the work that identity is something that's really complicated to talk about because of their context, because of the traumas they may have they will have experienced um, prior to coming into care. This will have you know colored children's experiences, children's perceptions of practitioners working with them, and and they might be fearful of speaking about particular aspects of their identity. In other contexts, they might just not be sure, you know, is this something I can talk about? Is this something of value? Is this something that shapes my experiences of care? Um, and so we found that children are really, really uncertain about, you know, what is worth asking or, or, or speaking about? Um, and, and may therefore not bring it up in in a straightforward conversation. You know, you're asking them questions. You might be writing things down. That's another, you know, that's another thing that might bring fear into a child or a young person. You're writing something down. Oh my gosh, whatever I say is going to be written, and that can really cause fear. And, and and whereas when we used creative methods, you know, all the methods that Kusha mentioned, you can really get into, you know, have some really detailed insights into a child or a young person's life. You know, Kusha had this experience where, and we all had these experiences as we went out into field where children didn't really want to speak to us and they'd refer us to something else, a piece of creative writing maybe a social media a platform, a social media profile. That's where we'd really pick up these nuances. I think it's important to create these alternative ways around talking about identity. Thank you. That's really helpful. Saria, you talked about um, influx identities at the start of this podcast. I wonder if you could just explain that in a little bit more detail and also how thinking about that framework might be useful for frontline practitioners? So I've introduced influx identity as a form of thinking about identity that is movable, that is changeable with time, that is reflective of the context um, a child lives in, and that crucially acknowledges you know, a child's worldview, a child or a young person's worldview. Now, let me let me give you, you know, some some examples here. We have encountered, um, for example, Muslim children who have told us, you know, they 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 may have they may well have come from a back you know from a background that was 
deeply religious, they have retained that commitment to religiosity in, in you know, some time of in, in some aspects of their journey through care. But they also spoke speak about how, you know, this changes with time. Sometimes they are on some days they're deeply, deeply religious. Um and, and religion is at the front of all their decision making, of their lived experiences. Um, but later on, as time moves on, perhaps as they live with a different foster carer or you know something changes at school um, or they have a new friend and their commitment to religion changes similarly we've heard from children of you know minoritized ethnic identities how you know in certain contexts their black identity is you know they, they describe it as the be-all and end-all of who we are. We, we really want to prioritize, we really want to emphasize um, our Black identity, we want to take that deep dives into Black culture, we want to engage in anti-racist politics. But then later on, this might take a back seat, you know, they might, um, again, it depends on context. The other thing we've, we've realized as, as we do all of this work and as we talk to children about identity is who they are placed with is a big determiner of you know, their experiences of identity. This does not mean that um, same ethnicity, same religion placements always create safe spaces for children and young people. It, it, for some children, it may well do. And, and, you know, we've come across children who thrive if they are in the same ethnicity, same um, religion placement. But we've also seen the nuances. On the face of it, it might, me, you, it might look, you know, you place a black child in a black household. It might look like a same ethnicity, a perfect match placement. But... Children really pick up the nuances, and if it may well be that the child is from a black Nigerian heritage and they're placed in a black South African uh, family, and and these differences really shape a child's experience through care. We really want to encourage family practitioners not to think about these these categories in sort of a centralized, set in stone. Um, ways. Instead, we encourage them to be asking each child, you know, what is your experience of faith? What is your experience of ethnic ethnicity so far in your life? How would you like to be known? You know, how would you like to be known today? And then when I meet you again, maybe three months down the line, I want to ask you again, how do you want to be known today? So it is really about these nuances. It is really about encouraging um, family practitioners to think about wider contexts and how these shape a child's perception of their self. You know, we've had young people, you know, young black people who've been the only black person in their school. They have been on edge. They have had felt the need to perform um, in a particular way. And then they have moved. And now they're not the only black person in their school. They're one of, you know, they're one of half the school um, is, is black because of the geographical location of that area. Does this mean that the pressures on the child are removed? 
Um, yes, in some cases, but we've seen children who've been troubled by this as well, because now it's a different kind of performance that they have to do. So coming back, Julie, to your question, you know, what is the impact of this influx identity on everyday frontline practice with children and young people? Um, we often get asked that question in sort of frontline practice context. And what we say is, um, our job is not to make it th make things easier. You know, we, we're not here, and, and indeed we cannot tell you what blackness might mean or what Islam might mean or what Christianity might mean to a child in care. Instead, what we're here to do is to encourage you to think about each child as really, really unique. As, as having had the, their own baggage. So prior to coming into care, they will have had lived experiences of identity. They bring that baggage with them. And every time they move to a different foster home, they're, they're adding, you know, to their baggage. And just as they've got their bags of, you know, stuff and clothes and toys and memories, you know, metaphorical bags, identity bags. And we encourage social workers to think about this and think about how it changes and then to, you know, tailor how they meet children's needs to, you know, how children articulate themselves. Um, I'll give you an example, right? Every time, um, so me and Kusha and Alison, we do a lot of work with frontline social work practitioners. We also deliver our work to, you know, communities, these might be black communities, these might be Muslim communities, to these might be Christian communities. And this is largely aimed at raising awareness about the needs of children in care. Now, every time we go to um, a Muslim community, we are often told about, let's give these children gift boxes. Let's give these children Muslim gift boxes. Now, firstly, I wonder how a gift box can suddenly become religious, but, but apparently they do, um, the jokes apart. Um, and, and they tell us, the communities tell us, in this gift box, we will put a Quran in it, probably in Arabic. We will put some prayer, prayer beads in it, you know, like a little rosary. It's called a tasbir in, in, in Muslim context, but it's very much like a rosary, a string of beads. We will put a prayer mat in it. Um, if it's a boy, we might put a little prayer cap in it. If it's a girl, a little hijab or a, a headscarf. For fun, we might put a toy in it, but we'll think about that. We often have to push back a little bit with Muslim communities because we have to tell them the reality of being in care means that some children might be genuinely, you know, grateful for this. They might genuinely love receiving a box with a Quran and prayer beads and a little hijab or whatever. Um, and they might be really happy and it might do well, serve these children well in re relation to their identity needs. There will be other children who are completely flummoxed, confused, who will be, you know, completely flummoxed by the contents of the box, who won't know, who won't know what to do with the prayer beads, who won't be able to recognize the Quran because their experience of Islam so far will have been one that is perhaps a cultural Muslim identity rather than a religious identity. And then there might be some children who might be traumatized by receiving a box of this nature because, you know, they may have had received ill treatment at the hands of people who were quote-unquote Muslim, you know, some sort of trauma by people who were Muslim that led them to coming into care. And so 
like we work, just as we work with Muslim communities and we push back and we say, look, you've really got to think about what Islam means for a child in care. It's the same kind of work we want to do with frontline practitioners. You've really got to understand the context of the child without imposing you know, these labels of, of ethnicity or of religion, or indeed, you know, Kusha talks a, a lot about caste. Before even imposing these labels, you've got to ask a child, what do these labels mean to you? And, and that's the thrust of our work. We've developed tools that um, practitioners can read about in our, our briefing to aid with having these conversations. And I think I would strongly recommend anyone who's listening to the podcast to um, read the briefing and in particular um, to look at some of the suggestions for practice that have been made in the briefing, which I think are really, really helpful. Well, that's really interesting to, to hear about um, this research and some really important findings coming out of it. So... Is that the end of the research or is there more to follow on that links into this research, Saria? Thanks, Julie. I think for this research team, this, um, this work that we've been doing is all about making a difference to society's most vulnerable children. There's a campaign going on at the moment that says being in care should be one of the you know, nine equality strands, because being in care does really limit life chances, like life outcomes for, for people with this um, experience. And so for us, this is all about commitment and, and, and professional as well as personal and trying to make things, you know, ever so slightly better for children and young people who are care experienced. Now, in this regard, we've more recently had funding come through from Bernardo's, and, and they're really keen to translate some of our own research findings as well as research that other people have been doing. And what they're keen to do is translate this into practice, into creating safe spaces within care settings where Black children in particular can feel, you know, feel able to assert who they are and to assert their identity needs. Um, in some ways, you know, we're very grateful to have to be doing this work from them because it's a it's almost, you know, it's like it, it's like it was destiny. But it's this opportunity to take the work that we have been doing separately, but to translate it again into different kinds of practice um, implications. So, yeah, excited to be starting that work at some point in the new year. Yes, translating the findings into practice is a key area and very, very um, important. So I'd just like to thank both um, Kusha and Saria for joining us and um, just want to see if there are any final thoughts before we sign off. Um, Julie, I think we'd like to thank you, both of us. We'd like to thank you as well as Research and Practice for giving us this opportunity to talk about our work. Well, thank you um, very much for all your contributions to its very, very valuable work. So thank you both very much for coming and look forward to um, seeing your new research coming out um, in due course. So thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.